technology and the rise and fall of great powers. Jeff Ding, professor at GW and the creator of the China AI Substack, argues that harnessing general purpose technologies are what great nations need to lead. We're going to discuss the historical underpinnings of that argument and apply it to AI today and draw out lessons for policymakers of uh, the research that Jeff has done spanning over three centuries of technologically driven great power transitions. Co-hosting with me today is Teddy Collins, formerly of DeepMind and uh, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Welcome to China Talk, you two. So Jeff, why is long-term productivity growth ultimately all that matters for great powers? Technology is going to affect a range of different things we care about in terms of great power competition. It's going to affect the military realm. It's going to affect how nations perceive other nations in terms of their prestige, their soft power. But for me, I'm most focused on economic power. Uh, it's the most fungible aspect of power. By that, I mean like you can transform and convert economic strength into military strength. A country that sustains its development becomes more reputable and gains soft power because of its development model. You can see that with China and sort of the, the Chinese model of development. And so I think economic power is the most fungible, the most transferable form of currency in terms of measuring power. And then also historically, we've seen the rise and fall of great powers occur through a pretty regular pattern. One country sustains productivity growth and economic growth at higher levels than its rivals becomes the preeminent economic power, and then converts that into geopolitical and military strength. So let's, let's, let's stay on that concept of fungibility. You know, a lot of people, I think there's a, there's a key difference in thinking about, you know, a two-year horizon or five-year horizon and like a 20 or 30-year horizon. So why, when we're looking at that time scale, is you know productivity growth really what um, uh, really what counts yeah i think in the long run productivity growth is what sustains economic growth so if you just take china as a specific example here china's economic growth to date has been driven by a range of factors but most notably demographic advantages so uh a very large young workforce that is willing to work for low wages, and two, urbanization. The transition from a rural agriculture-based economy to a more urbanized industrial economy brings a lot of just good opportunities for growth. But those two advantages are fading. Um, as China tries to escape the middle income trap and become an advanced high-income economy, and we know from a range of empirical literature, economists, developmental scholars have found that the way to escape that middle income trap to sustain economic growth in the long run is through productivity growth and adopting new technologies. All right. So great powers are, are great powers because they are powerful. And their, their power, you argue, Jeff, um, derives pretty fundamentally from the fact that they are the they are very rich, if not generally the richest countries on the planet. What over the long term drives 
national uh, economic growth. Great powers, it is a fuzzy concept. I would say a great power is a country that uh, both has a large economy and an advanced economy. And those two pieces working together are really important. Um, it's not enough to just have a very populous country with a large economy if that economy is not efficient, uh, because that's what sustains growth uh, in the long run. And so we, we've seen historically changes in great powers. Uh, the rise and fall of great powers happens because new technologies create differences in economic growth. You know, one country is able to sustain growth for a longer period of time at a higher rate off the back of these new technologies, whereas another power suffers a decline. You know, when most people think about economic policies, right? Like generally the the time frame that that sort of average citizens, policymakers are thinking about is like, you know, one to three, maybe five years. And on a sort of five years and in basis, there are a lot of different, you know, policy decisions that can have sort of near term impacts um, on economic growth. So, you know, you can have you can have fiscal policy. You can like juke around with the with the um uh, uh you know with with with, with monetary monetary policy. But if you zoom out over you know 10, 20, 30, 40 years, the changes on the edge it seems to me that you can make uh, with fiscal and monetary policy end up kind of uh, balancing out. And ultimately, what remains is how you uh, sort of absorb and adopt to new technologies. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on fiscal or monetary policy. I think that can have some long-term effects on incentivizing technological change and technological adoption. Oftentimes we do focus on just that initial moment of innovation. And with that, we assume that it will make an impact within five years or even, you know, the the top level machine learning experts today, if you pull them and ask them when we'll get high level machine intelligence, a lot of them say like by 2035, or even, you know, the commentators on when AI will change the balance of power, it's gonna happen within the next decade, kind of that's our horizon. Uh, and for me, for a lot of these revolutionary advances in the past, they've taken decades, uh, oftentimes four or five decades to diffuse throughout society and actually make the impact that we think they will make. So what it means from a policy perspective to be focused on a 20 or 30 year horizon is fundamentally very different than a five year horizon, because the types of things you want to bet on and the, the sort of policies which are robust to different futures is different when you're looking so far out and the future is 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 uncertain. And I think that what has been that's what's been so interesting to me about going into your your research is just how many times this has played out over time. So let's let's take a step back or let's take a step forward and um, look into some of the case studies to illustrate just how important technology is to long term. I don't know national greatness, you know, uh, nations being able to like claim their place on the top of the global food chain. Why don't we very briefly do uh, the sort of first and second industrial 
um, revolutions. How did wh what role did technology play in helping in helping the UK um, supplant its uh, its rivals in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries? Essentially, the argument there is that the UK was able to sustain productivity levels um, higher than their rivals uh, because they adopted iron advances, metalworking advances, and mechanization at scale uh, more effectively than their rivals. Um, oftentimes, with the Industrial Revolution case, we gravitate towards the fast-growing new industry of cotton textiles. Uh, and my argument is actually that it was this more gradual, protracted diffusion of iron, machine-making, and mechanization throughout the entire British economy that was the real driver of Britain being able to industrialize at a faster rate than their rivals like the Netherlands and France. So this is this is, I think, where a good time to introduce the the concept of general purpose technologies. So what are they and why are they so important to these uh, questions of rise and fall of great powers? Yeah, general purpose technologies uh, have been deemed by economic historians as engines of growth. They are these engines because they're fundamental advances that have the potential to transform broad swaths of the economy. Um, and oftentimes there's a whole research agenda attached to them. There's a lot of scope for continual improvement. And crucially, um, they only make an impact if there's a lot of complementary technologies across many different sectors that adapt in turn. Something like electricity is held up as a prototypical example of a general purpose technology. Um, electricity is only able to make an impact on productivity uh, if you change your factory layouts from being driven by a central steam engine and a system of shafts and belts connected to one central steam engine. Um, if you change that layout to something that's more decentralized so that each machine is driven by an individual electric generator. And electricity was only made available to all these different applications with the rise of um, electric utilities, central generating stations, uh, and those were affected by other complementary technologies like steam turbines. So these general purpose technologies take a really long time to diffuse throughout the economy and are reliant on all these different complementary advances across a wide range of economic sectors to, to make their ultimate impact. So your two key points on on these GPTs is that if you're looking on a, you know, multi-decadal horizon, they're the ones that are going to drive productivity growth over time. It's not the, you know, it's not the cotton textiles. It's not the sort of like cute one-offs that may be you know, that may give you, you know, significant productivity growth in one particular segment of the economy. But the GPTs are the ones that do it for your whole nation. Um, and exactly. what it requires is not necessarily having Thomas Edison, you know, invent the light bulb, but it's the it's all of the hard work necessary to like, you know, hook up the entire country to electricity and then sort of the 
the, all of the changes that need to come in the factory layouts and this sort of industrial organization and the creation of firms and and you know, this, that and the other thing, which are, you know, hard and but but end up kind of touching the entire swath of the of the economy and getting those things right, even more than whatever, you know, is the hot emerging technology of the day is what's going to is what's going to keep your you know your country in the lead over um uh, uh, uh over the long term yeah and, and just bring it home to that first industrial revolution example uh, on your point about talent i think oftentimes we hold up this image of the heroic inventor right james watt britain became the leading industrial power because they had the james watts of the world to invent the steam engine uh, but actually when economic historians have dug deeper into Britain's source of advantage, they've underscored Britain's sort of average level of technical literacy, that they had just this higher level of average technical literacy among the millwrights, among early versions of mechanical engineers, machinists, mechanists, um, who were able to deploy um, these new iron-based machines uh, in all these different industries. Sure. So let's let's stay there for a second. The, the, this concept of like having like the geniuses are nice, uh, but not necessarily essential, and that it's like the like the level down of having the implementers um, that live in all the different you know corners of the economy and see whatever it is that's that's new and exciting, and then being able to kind of bring that into whatever their expertise is, uh, is a pattern you've, um, you've identified and played out over time. So maybe let's, let's, yeah. let's jump forward an industrial revolution. Why don't you, um, kind of apply that to the, to the Germany versus us context? Yes. So the short summary for, for the Germany, us and the UK comparison for the second industrial revolution, which is unfolding from around 1870 to 1914. The version of the story that I tell here is that the U.S. actually became the preeminent economic power, uh, not just in terms of size, but the combination of size and actually overtaking Britain in economic efficiency, whether that's measured by labor productivity or GDP per capita as a measure of the development level of the economy. And for me, the, the key GPT, general purpose technology trajectory, was the spread of interchangeable manufacture. Not necessarily who was exporting the most advanced chemicals at that time, which political scientists have often attached to the reason Germany became a challenger to Britain. Uh, but actually, it was the spread of interchangeable manufacturing methods, what became known as the American system of manufacture across making sewing machines, making bicycles, making uh, all sorts of devices and all sorts of sectors of the economy uh, that led to the U.S. gaining this productivity advantage. And actually, other countries were ahead in terms of inventive genius, in terms of which countries had the research centers of excellence, which countries had the deep minds of the world, so to speak, at that time, right? Um, and it was really the U.S. that was able to diffuse this interchangeable manufacturing method because they had stronger connections between the frontier institutions, 
and the entrepreneurs and the engineers, and they were able to actually build up a more practice-oriented mechanical engineering discipline. Um, and, and part of that is due to investments in land-grant universities that, that built up strong mechanical engineering developments all across the country, uh, not just in the elite universities. Jeff, I'm curious as to whether you think that it seems as though in the examples that you've given, there are at least two different categories of this sort of diffusion potential or diffusion capability, one of which is the broad basic literacy or tacit knowledge that exists throughout a population as opposed to a handful of spiky inventors or entrepreneurs. The second is maybe a willingness to experiment with and then implement new approaches to infrastructure. So the factory design stuff and the dynamo in the computer and all of these analyses that said, as you said, you have to redesign workflows, physical buildings, settings, that's a big capital expense. Those two things seem a bit different and it seems like they would come with different policy implications. I wonder if you could speak to which of those you think is more important, whether you think that's a fair distinction, if there are other things you'd add to that taxonomy. Yeah, I think that's a very fair distinction. So in my writing with the book and the diffusion deficit article, I tend to focus on the human capital argument. How do you build a wider base of engineers, average engineers associated with the general purpose technology? I think there's a lot of other factors that drive the pace and intensity of GPT adoption including some of the things that you mentioned, such as organizational restructuring, such as the level of vested interest or sort of legacy institutions that are in, that exist in some countries. So this is why some people say there's a latecomer advantage, right? Um, countries that don't have those legacy institutions that are just better equipped to implement some of these structural reforms. On that second level, it's very hard to measure and operationalize these things in terms of how many vested interests are in a particular industry. And that might change across all these different industries. And these are, I'm comparing advanced economies that all would probably have some level of vested interests and established structures. Um, so for me, my preference is to look at things that cut across all different industries, like the average level of engineering talent associated with the general purpose technology, or the degree to which you're universities are linked and communicating effectively with industry entrepreneurs and the, the, the strength of those communication linkages, dissemination mechanisms for uh, transferring ideas about technology. I mean, I feel like there's, there, there's also some softer stuff that's in here because there's something so, so like societally disorienting about these general purpose technologies that your your kind of whole system and like ethos needs to be ready for that uh since we're on the since we're on the second second industrial revolution i want to read you read you a quote from uh elting morrison's men machines in modern times which kind of gives you a flavor of of what it was like for folks who made iron to transition into um uh into making steel so it kind of talked about how in the in 19, in 1857 you know, everything was there to transition from iron to steel, but there were all of these sort of cultural, societal, economic reasons not to take that leaf. And so he says, in sort of explaining the hesitance and the and the and the multi-decade 
lag that it took to adopt this new technology, Eltig writes, um, would it not by replacement of an old reagent, iron, with a new element of steel, replace also the customs, habits, procedures, and hierarchical arrangements upon which the security of life of the iron train depended? The converter, uh, or the, the sort of uh, Bessemer steel converter in this context, uh, looks less like a tool of commerce and more like some catapult leveled against a walled town. And I, th I think sort of people, organizations, institutions, and nations, ultimately, when they are staring at that walled town, you know, when, when they're when they're looking at that catapult, respond to it in very different ways. Yeah, exactly. This is an example of transforming just one industry, right, to adopt a new innovation, you know, steel making. Um, now multiply that for a G general purpose technology to any industry that a, that a GPT would affect, and you have it gets even more complicated and magnified in terms of the structural changes needed to adopt GPTs and the softer stuff, like you mentioned, culture, um, status, people wanting to protect uh, the skills that they've already developed. Um, all of these things come into play. Let's sort of get up to the present briefly. You know, the Cold War is a really great case for your um, for your argument. Uh, the Soviet Union had these awesome research scientists and, um, you know, in a number of fields was able to do stuff in the lab, which was at or even exceeding at sometimes what America could pull off. But basically, once you started to have this sort of technological ground shift under the Soviet Union, when you move past sort of like steel driven development and you get back, get into sort of electronics in the in the 60s, 70s and 80s. The, the Soviet system wasn't able to adapt and diffuse the technologies nearly as um, uh, as effectively as the U.S. was such that uh, uh, do you want you want to tell the story, Jeff, of this uh, CIA report from 1969, basically saying, like, America's got this in the bag? Yeah, I think, you know, th this this case is uh, supporting my argument in this diffusion deficit paper, which is when we assess countries. Uh, scientific and technological capabilities, uh, we overweight innovation capacity. And th these are our typical indicators. Uh, who's spending the most on R&D? Who has the top scientists publishing the most, uh, getting the most cited patents out there uh, in different fields? Th these are the things that we gravitate towards. Uh, and we discount diffusion capacity. Um, once that groundbreaking paper has been published, are those ideas being commercialized and spread across all these different industries? After the advances come out of DeepMind, are those then spreading to, spreading from these frontier firms to the small and medium firms that are driving most of the productivity growth in the entire economy? And in the Soviet Union's case, they perform so well on all these traditional measures of innovation capacity in terms of who had the most PhDs in STEM fields, who was spending the most on R&D. But like that 1969 CIA report that I cite, their assessment was that the Soviet Union lacked these sort of like fast acting biological processes of diffusion, the sort of the planned economy nature of the Soviet Union limited the ability for these new advances to permeate and spread throughout the entire economy. So yes, the Soviet Union was doing well in sort of like mission-oriented breakthroughs like Sputnik, um, but it was not an economy equipped to computerize at scale, for instance. Um, and that led to stagnant productivity growth and ultimately um, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. A fun theme in your research is just like Americans freaking out 
um, about about losing. You know, in the in the 1950s, everyone was like, "Oh my God, the Soviets have more PhDs than we do. Like this is this is all going to be terrible." And then, you know, in 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 the 1980s, I mean, us three are all too young for this, but it was real the concern that Japan was going to um, to overtake the U.S. David Halberstam, author of The Best and Brightest and Breaks of the, and, and uh, of course, uh, you know, a, an eternal NBA legend for Breaks of the Game, wrote in 1983 that Japan's industrial ascent was America's most difficult challenge for the rest of the century and, quote, a more intense competition than the previous political military competition with the Soviet Union. You know, this was like deep consensus um, within the sort of American body politic that um, America was losing the technological um, uh, future and like long-term productivity race to um, uh, uh, to Japan. So why didn't well, so w- what didn't Japan get right? Even though it seemed to um, uh, you know not fr- suffer from like the type of uh, uh, planned economy socialism that um, uh, the Soviet Union did, or or maybe that was a part of their their problem. Anyways, Jeff, uh, uh, talk to me about the eighties. Just to underscore your point. This was a very real threat in the eyes of the U.S. at the time. Henry Kissinger writes an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that uh, because of Japan's economic strength uh, and rise in high-tech sectors, that they would eventually convert it into military power and become a military threat to the U.S. Um, A poll around this time, like late 1980s, a New York Times poll of the American public finds that more Americans thought Japan was a greater threat than Soviet Union uh, to U.S. national security. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about Cold War parallels and analogies for U.S.-China AI competition. And for me, actually, the trend that I see so clearly in terms of all these historical examples is the U.S. overhyping other countries' scientific and technological capabilities. And I think one reason we do that is because we don't pay as much attention to diffusion capacity. This is a case in the book manuscript about why Japan was not able to overtake the U.S. It got to like about 90% of U.S. productivity levels in terms of total factor productivity, but then it stalled in the 1990s. Uh, That's due to a number of reasons. Uh, Fiscal monetary policy stuff that we mentioned, that's all relevant here. Uh, For for my purposes, what I highlight is uh, Japan gained a lot of market share in a lot of these new fast-growing industries like consumer electronics and key semiconductor components, uh, but it fell behind the U.S. in terms of adopting computers at scale and overall computerization rates. Uh, for me, I highlight deficiencies in Japan's ability to train a large number of software engineers. They built a lot of centers of excellence at certain universities, but they weren't able to build a wider pool of institutions uh, to train software engineers and fill in uh, those talent gaps uh, that held back the diffusion of computers uh, throughout the entire economy. No, it's 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 interesting, the idea that, well, two points first, like. You know, people people like, you know, this is like a parlor game, right, where people think about ethics and like what 30 years from now are people going to think, you know, we were monsters for believing in if, you know, 30 years ago, everyone thought gay marriage was a problem or 100 years ago, people thought women couldn't vote or what have you. But like the same totally applies to sort of technological and geopolitical assumptions. And I think that's that's something that I didn't really realize until I started reading more history and not just history, but like, like 
what Jordan Schneider would have been doing 50 years ago, like writing, you know, writing reports at a think tank, because you can really like, it's one thing to read what a president says, but if you like imagine yourself as like, as like a, you know, a writer or an academic or a journalist uh, or, or, you know, or a student like back in the fifties or seventies. Um, and then you just see how wrong things that everyone believed end up turning out to be. There, there's some like profound amount of humility that gets inculcated in you um, when you then, you know, sit down and think about 2023 and what it is that everyone agrees with, um, which is probably worth some some um, some deeper interrogation and understanding that, uh, again, on a decadal horizon, like things end up things can end up turning out pretty radically from whatever the, the consensus is. Um, yeah, I think our our takes are all shaped by who we're talking to, the institutions we belong to, the ideas that are circling around the rooms that we're in, the narratives of our times, and myself included. But I think looking at historical examples forces you to get out of that a little bit and sort of get yourself out of your little mini echo chamber and sort of understand that maybe we would, we're very wrong about about the assumptions that we have in my social group and in all the people that I'm reading and listening to. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, just it, it's I think it's a very important dose of humility. Yeah, it's not just social group, though. It's like literally like my age could be wrong. Sure. It's like yeah. everyone could be wrong. Anyways, uh, Teddy. Yeah. Building on that in this sort of overrated, underrated framing. First, as a note, Jeff, it was very interesting for me reading the diffusion paper because I've seen now like 100 times over numbers that are almost identical to the ones that worry people about USSR, US uh, PhD graduations, but I've seen the equivalent for people freaking out now about comparisons to China graduating more STEM talent. And I'd never seen these USSR numbers, which maybe just speaks more to my like historical illiteracy, but it's fascinating to me to see that and to think now, yeah, is this something that perhaps we, we overestimate as a risk? Point to this like cadre of American computer scientists, as well as, you know, something that America also figured out how to do in the sort of late uh, 19th century context of like training just engineers who knew how to like build machines with their hands. It it feels like there's also something more amorphous at work. Um, You know, and people talk about like national spirit or whatever. Because also sort of in, in American literature in the 70s and 80s, you had this argument that America had lost its sort of engineering prowess interests like desire to like make and 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 build stuff so so maybe sort of when thinking about the the example of the 80s and 90s like what 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 were the sort of ingredient like like national sort of policy as well as like i don't know traits that allowed the the sort of diffusion of the information age to um to happen to with such dramatic success in the u.s yeah i think one important factor behind all of this is just an access to a wider pool of software engineering talent uh, because the U.S. was tapping into so many uh, immigrants who wanted to come to the U.S. and study uh, these areas and work in these areas, whereas Japan was relatively closed off in terms of not just bringing in foreign talent, but even, even sending students out to other universities. Uh, so, so that's one one element in terms of a broader pool of computer scientists and software engineers. I think the second is 
a lot of times in the wake of these new GPTs, you almost have to have a new engineering discipline. So mechanical engineering in response to mechanization, electrical engineering in response to electrification, computer science in response to the computer. Um, and U.S. universities, the U.S. system was more decentralized and they had the flexibility to, to adapt and sort of build this new curriculum for training uh, software engineers at scale, um, whereas Japan's system was more rigid and centralized. All right, let's come to AI. So I think we've made the case enough on China Talk that AI has the potential to be this next GPD and something that can drive you know, real productivity go growth over a multi-decade horizon. Let's maybe start with this kind of en engineering question. I don't know, Teddy, can you like imagine the 10 different types of diffusion disciplines that uh, nations should think about investing in with this sort of uh, electrical engineering, computer engineering parallel? Well, yeah, maybe I'd, I'd frame a question for Jeff. And I'm curious if you were made the czar of all AI-related policy in the United States, um, are there specific things in, in either of those categories that you would push? I can imagine that what you have said might imply different distributions of resources across like high-end PhD programs uh, versus uh, like graduate, um, like masters and undergraduate education or something like that. Uh, and then I'm also curious in the second category, is there anything that seems to you to be a candidate for the equivalent of factory redesign for AI? What will it take for AI to show up in the productivity statistics? And what would a country that ends up reaping a lot of those benefits be doing in order to realize those gains? Yeah, that's, that's great stuff. I think on the first plank, investing in human capital, for me, that looks like how do you widen the base of average AI engineers? So people who are not necessarily training the cutting edge models, but can take an existing model uh, and apply it to a particular scenario, maybe fine tune it on a more specialized data set, uh, maybe take something that is already out there open source and, and apply it to their specific industry context. Uh, and, and training that talent might look like investing in community colleges um, and uh, improving that capacity to train people in this general field of computer science. I think on that second bucket, I think infrastructure is in there. But, you know, for me, it's just anything that would affect GPT diffusion, uh, not necessarily just driving cutting edge innovation. Um, so, yeah, infrastructure matters for that, right? G giving how do you improve access to compute for a wide range of universities and even small and medium businesses. Um, that That's something that the National Research Cloud discussions has not really gone that far into. They've kind of focused more on just can we get high-end universities access to more computing resources. And then, yeah, things that any any investments in institutions that are encouraging more technology transfer. Um, so different scholars have found that there are like voucher systems that uh, you can put into place that incentivize uh, small sized companies to uh, go to some of these frontier firms and learn and adopt new techniques from these firms and sort of like subsidizing that, encouraging that in some way is another uh, step that governments can take. 
it's interesting thinking about the sort of like the, the, the iron to steel transition. And on the one hand, like, you know, how much how much like more support we have for these technological transformations today than we necessarily did, you know, 30 years ago. One of the arguments you make, Jeff, is like, look, GPTs, they come online, but you don't see them in the productivity statistics until like 20 years later because it's it takes a long time for people to wrap their head around it. But like we already have a nationally integrated economy, whereas, you know, you couldn't even have firms um, uh, in some of these past uh, transitions. Like we've figured out how to finance um, a lot of these institutions. We have a whole uh, venture capital ecosystem and everyone understands that there are enormous uh, gains to be made from from these te uh, technolo technology innovations. But like the thing that I am focused on, or like, I guess you can say worried about um, when it comes to uh, diffusion is the potential roadblocks that could come in the way from a policy perspective if this change happens, quote unquote, too fast. And the sort of body politic um, or specific industries just reject it. And um, you end up having types of uh, legislative uh, roadblocks, which ultimately, um, you know, make everyone worse off because there's like lower productivity growth and the, the technological change, which like is going to end up coming eventually, like just doesn't happen. And you just have a, a poorer society because we're, we're not as a as, as a as a civilization uh, we're not as a country kind of leaning into uh, uh leaning into and trying to make the best out of uh these 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 technologies which have so much potential uh positive potential but but just more focusing on um uh you know throwing out throwing the baby out with the with the bathwater. so i'm curious jeff if if there if like the first thing that comes to mind is like is like tokugawa japan right which maybe isn't the 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 best um analogy but i'm curious Jeff, for any um, any examples you had in history of like countries seeing a GPT freaking out and then like missing out on an entire technological revolution because they they couldn't adopt their um, uh, um, their their regulatory or political system. Yeah, I think this is very relevant for AI just because there are so many risks associated with AI systems, from misinformation to uh, accidents. You know, on a kind of a, a narrower technical dimension, things like misspecified reward functions that result in um, all these out of control behaviors. And you know, when you were talking about that, um, I was thinking you know, there's there's a case to be made that smart, pragmatic regulation can enable sort of a more sustainable development and, and diffusion sure. of these GPTs. Uh, I don't know. The thing that comes to mind for me is nuclear energy you know, key accidents and safety issues with nuclear energy systems derailing um, their adoption at scale. Related to that, I was actually thinking, Jordan, when, when, you were, uh, when you raised the prompt, what would the equivalent versions of us be doing in previous eras and what would we get wrong? I could absolutely see a version of myself 50 years ago thinking that nothing mattered other than nuclear. There is something that is sort of, I mean, it's so, it, it, it unlocks the power of the atom. There's something very poetic about that. It has the, the promise to potentially empower all of human civilization. And I could absolutely see myself drinking the nuclear Kool-Aid. And then for a host of reasons, some technical, some regulatory. <laughs> um, that has not played out anywhere near the level that I think the biggest enthusiasts expected. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's very apt parallel, Jeff. 
I have another question going back to um, this idea of sort of diffusion um, and the types of human capital investment that uh, a diffusion focus would require as opposed to an innovation focus. I can imagine someone saying that for fundamental reasons, software is different because it spreads much more easily. Uh, The marginal cost is basically zero. We've already seen that realized in the sense that we have a small number of platforms that are responsible for a huge proportion of software in use. And you could see the case being made that in this situation, you only need a small number of people at a small number of companies who understand this technology at the cutting edge in order to implement something that quickly diffuses to almost everyone using an iPhone, the Google suite, the Microsoft suite, etc. Um, and thus that the sort of broad-based tacit knowledge is less important. And uh, I can imagine counter arguments to this, but I'm curious what your take would be. Yeah, and I think this this speaks to some of the points Jordan was bringing up about um, our technology is just diffusing faster today. So maybe my predictions about GPTs taking so long, multiple decades to make their impact, maybe those are a little bit outdated in a software-based world. Um, I think one way to measure this is whenever you date a GPT emerging, like maybe it reaches 1% adoption in an early adopting sector. So the first sector that, you know, like, like let's say all the big internet companies were the first to adopt AI with like, you know, adjusting their search recommendation algorithms. That's the starting date. And then when does it reach like 50% adoption as the median across all possible adopting industries. And, and that's the time frame for the, the specific diffusion capacity and sort of diffusion timeline that I'm talking about. People have tried to measure that for electricity and information communications technologies. I think this is like Nicholas Crafts has done some of this work. Other people like uh, who study GPTs have done this work as well. I think they found there has been a slight decrease in time for that. Um, but it's still on the order of multiple decades. Um, and even if you look at, in, you know, we've had breakthroughs in AI now for almost a decade with advance of deep learning, um, almost over a decade ago, uh, Census Bureau in 2018 does a module where they ask companies across all these different sectors, to what extent have you tested and actually trialed machine learning systems? And the percent adoption rate was still below 3%. There's different takes on this. I think some people, rightly so, adopt an inside view. They know a lot more about AI than me. They're tracking everything that's happening on a daily basis in AI. It's also exciting. So they're like, this thing's going to diffuse fast. Let's be ready for it. We should be thinking on the time scale of within this decade. Then I think there's also value for considering what the external view says from all these past examples um, from the historical lessons. And I'm not saying one is dogmatically right, um, but... Um, we should have a mix. I think the balance is tilted too much towards the inside view right now. And and we should have a better balance in terms of incorporating some of these historical insights. So I have a, I have a buddy podcast for you. Um, the, the show after this um, is going to be this guy who runs the AI and business podcast. And you've been doing it for 10 years. And it's basically like, it's all about the implementation challenges of like, okay, what does it actually mean to like reform your business or whatever? And, it was um uh, it was really fun because he was like yeah the, the past 10 years have been such a letdown but this new stuff is so much better that 
you know, all of my cynicism has been like wiped away by the past six mm. months of uh, of seeing of seeing these um uh, of seeing these models refuse. So, anyways, ever everyone tune in uh, tune in in four days to uh, to listen to Dan's take on you know what implementation actually looks like on the uh, on the ground level. I want to sort of bring this bring this stuff all back to the U.S. and China. Well, let's come back. Let's come back and dive deeper into the idea, Jeff, that um, China actually has is likely going to have some real challenges when it comes to getting diffusion right on this uh, technology. Even if you know, even if they ultimately end up being able to develop uh, you know equally or roughly equally powerful um, uh, you know base algorithms like a, you know like a China GPT four. Yeah. So there's just a gap in terms of how do we measure diffusion capacity for different countries. I just went over that metric of the 1% to, to 50% median. That's hard work to actually do. It's much easier to just like cite anecdotal stuff or pull a number about R&D and, and make broad claims. You know, the, the exercise that I did in the diffusion deficit paper is kind of look at all these different global indexes on science and technology indicators. And there's you know hundreds of different science and technology indicators, and I tried to sort ones that trended more towards innovation capacity. So your top three firms in terms of R&D investments and kind of how much are they spending on R&D? Or what's the ranking of your top three universities in scientific research? Those are more closely tied to innovation capacity. Uh, whereas things like how fast and how to what extent have information communications technologies diffused throughout your economy? Uh, what is the adoption rate of cloud computing in your country? Um, how strong are the linkages between your universities and companies in terms of spreading new ideas and collaborating? Um, and sorted those more into diffusion capacity. And, and based off of that exercise, I found that China's diffusion capacity lags far behind its innovation capacity. And on all those indicators that are more tied to diffusion capacity, if you average them, you know, China's global ranking is almost 30 places, maybe more than 35 places lower than its uh, innovation capacity ranking. You know, when thinking about this idea of like, quote unquote, like systems competition, oftentimes I get frustrated by American policymaking that it is so diffuse. And that you need to like, you know, make all the different representatives happy and throw everyone a bone. And, you know, you have all these irrational policies and like this state is doing something that's that's, um, uh, you know, going against the grain of that state. But there is something that is like very powerful, yes. I think, about the way America is set up in that just because of the mess that our political system is, it ends up it ends up not concentrating its bets too tightly yes and you know we are very uh, you know it is awesome that you know we have an open ai and a deep mind and you know all the best universities and whatever but yeah. like i think there's something that you know that that's really speaks to what it is about what makes america special and weird is like that is almost like downstream of all of the weirdness um, that is baked into a lot of the American system, and the fact that it's it's not a you know centrally planned thing. I just want to put in an obligatory footnote that DeepMind is based in London, although owned by Google, which is a U.S. company. But yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I think that's spot on. Uh, not just that DeepMind is a British company, but it, the, this idea that decentralization is very strongly tied to high levels of diffusion capacity. And that's been borne out by a lot of different uh, econometric research, empirical work. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I think there are things the U.S. can be doing. We've talked about that, but I've testified twice in front of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Usually you give out three specific policy recommendations. My first one, both of those times I testified, was the status quo is a defensible option. Um, the U.S. is in a good position right now uh, because of its decentralized uh, science and technology system. Um, so, yeah, I, I strongly believe that. And I think the other, the, 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 the U.S. Sha Shou Jian, um, so to speak, is um, the uh, the alliance system because if you if you think about you know coming back to the beginning of, a, of our conversation right and the and long term productivity growth and just ultimately like having the bigger batter economy is the one that's gonna gonna lead you on top on the top of the food chain it's like well that is the case but like it, it's also you know the, the the growth is important but the the sort of what what you are adding to your side of the ledger is 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 the other thing that makes up the equation if you're if you're trying to look at the the sort of relative power balance of of, of two sides and and um you know America isn't just diffuse uh you know it doesn't just govern itself in a diffused way it also can draw on like an entire planet of of of, of advanced uh developed economic you know treaty allies. Um, which is something that China can't. Um, and so, you know, when I think about like the ways America could screw this up um, over the next 30 years, um, something like getting a general purpose technology revolution wrong is still something is so, is, you know, it's a huge new, new variable. No one really knows what to do. You know, we tried to come up with some policy recommendations. It's like so incredibly uncertain that I think it's it's going to take a lot of a lot of thinking and a lot of iterative thinking as as the technology changes uh, changes over time of what sort of you know we sh we should and shouldn't allow companies and, and governments to do with this stuff um sort of point two for me on like America winning the 21st century is to not screw up the 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 sort of uh you know geopolitical alliance system which it's been able to sustain for the past 75 years and then the third one is just like just not ripping ourselves apart um and like having the the you know breaking up into five countries or like you know having some enormous constitutional crisis where like you know democracy ends or something am i am i am i missing anything jeff what else what else is on your um uh on your uh on your bingo card of of uh what what america needs to do to sort of sustain uh over a multi-decade horizon yeah no i i think you know, I'll leave the alliances, democracy, other people focus on that. I think for me on the technology side, one of the things that's important for the U.S. not to do is to like lock into a specific technological trajectory um, in AI. Um, if we were having this podcast two years ago, we might be talking more about computer vision. Um, now the hottest subfield is natural language processing. Yeah, and actually if, we're, let's, if we were having this podcast... 18 years ago, when Clinton announced the Na National Nanotechnology Initiative, we would be talking about nanotechnology. 
Uh, no one talks about nanotechnology anymore, even though actually it might have some like general purpose technology characteristics. Um, it's just diffusing kind of under the radar. I love this. I love this quote you, you have from 2003 with the undersecretary of technology at Commerce saying, nano's potential rises to near biblical proportions. It's like, I mean, maybe, but if if America put all our eggs in that basket um, in, in 2020 and was it, you know, paying computer scientists to figure out uh, AI models, then, you know, we, we might be in a very different place. Yeah. So maintaining diversified bets in the AI space. Yes, I think the whole pour a lot of compute and resources into these transformer models seems to be one bet. I think there are other fields of AI even beyond deep learning, reinforcement learning, like causality-based thinking um, and models that we should not like ignore or like neglect, neglect the long-term promise of. So uh, basically not doing what Japan did when they kind of invested in um, their fifth generation computing project that kind of narrowly looked at computers as like huge mainframes, large mainframes in a world where it was increasingly turning towards personal computing um, and sort of avoiding kind of locking in one technological trajectory. Of course, it's sort of funny because now we've come full circle uh, with respect to Japan was maybe just ahead of its time <laughs> in terms of now we're trying to build these like massive GPU clusters that can run these absolutely ginormous yeah. models. And, and so... Jeff, do you want to take the sort of talent question and apply it to uh, to sort of GPTs? You know, talent and diffu diffusion and GPTs, you know, there are different historical examples yeah. of like, you know, America got three people from the UK to like teach them how to make a mill. And then all of a sudden, like everyone had mills 15 years later. How kind of defensible, you know, keeping the brains or keeping the IP, you know, located within your national borders. Is that something that like works over time for these general purpose technologies? Uh, no, because this is just, it's like, how do you keep such a foundational technology locked up? It's not like a, GPTs aren't like a pharmaceutical secret. That, you know, that's not the model. We're not talking about like monopoly profits from um, one country monopolizing profits from this super secret innovation. Um, it's more about how you, you adopt these innovations at scale. I think, you know, China's efforts to attract talent back from overseas countries um, has helped them stay abreast of the frontier in AI research and stay connected to different innovation networks and sort of that helps facilitate that initial adoption. What I'm most interested in is after those top Chinese scientists hear and hear about the latest advances and kind of learn the latest breakthroughs, how does that then diffuse to the next level down um, and throughout the entire country? Um, so it's hard to have indicators of that for diffusion capacity in AI. Uh, one approach I use in the book manuscript is how many universities do you have that meet some baseline level of quality for AI engineering education? Um, so I look at the CS rankings database and try to figure out how many universities in China have at least just one researcher who has published in sort of the top three AI conferences. Um, and that number is relatively low compared to the US. I think it's like about 100 to the US, which has around 400. 
So just a broader pool of U.S. universities that even meet that very low bar for some quality, baseline quality of AI engineering education. So um, if all you care about, Jeff, is like relative productivity growth rates, um, U.S. China relative productivity growth rates, like what's the case you make to, um, you know, that congressperson that, you know, you should still allow a free flow of talent between the U.S. and China? A lot of that talent is flowing to the U.S. and staying in the U.S. Um, so there, there's that angle. I think for me, the flow of talent back to China um, obviously is helping China's diffusion capacity. But I think relatively speaking, um, it's arguable that it's helping the U.S. more. And I think this is not the only thing that matters, right? My argument about diffusion capacity and productivity differentials, um, there's a lot of other reasons why we'd want to keep those flows open just because there are a lot of advantages to having an open economy, um, to not discriminating on to not discriminate on the basis of like geographic origin, nationality when it comes to shaping uh, immigration policy. So I would say those things matter more than kind of that specific policy's effect on relative diffusion capacity levels. Okay, so you know, Jeff, we were we were pretty close to president at the creation for Substack. I think you, it was like basically me, you and Bill Bishop for a while as the only people like regularly writing in English on Substack about China. Um, you know, you, you just reached your fifth year anniversary of, 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 uh, of, of writing what's a truly fantastic weekly roundup of uh, a translation as well as your, your sort of like, uh, you know, favorite papers and like occasional hot takes. I, I'm curious, you know, what, the discipline of reading all of this Chinese language, um, contemporary stuff about AI kind of gave you as a, um, as a researcher trying to think more broadly and conceptually about, you know, technology and the rise and fall of uh, nations. Yeah, it's fun to look back because I think I actually was on a podcast with you in the early stages of starting up the China AI newsletter as well. So it's fun to look back uh, five years later. I think we have a few more wrinkles and maybe are more jaded and cynical than we even were back then. But um, I th in terms of the value of it, the discipline of it is going back to our conversation about why looking at history kind of forces us out of the the echo chamber or sort of our, our pre-existing biases and dispositions. Um, I think just reading what Chinese people are thinking about in terms of AI forces me to like get out of the DC bubble um, the academic academic bubble that I'm in, in terms of how I think about um, AI and U.S.-China competition, just a reading a completely different set of ideas from people living in a completely different context, whether that's bloggers, government white papers, or anything of that nature. And actually, the diffusion deficit paper we've talked about in detail here, uh, that's very much inspired by China AI translations about companies that are trying to implement computer vision to improve machine quality inspection on production lines for making cutting tools and knives, right? That's like one of the favorite translations that I've done. And it speaks to uh, these companies, these people are not like the ones that make the news, like the sense times, the most valuable AI startups of the world, um, but just how China is trying to implement AI 
at a more granular level. Um, so it, so very much what I've talked with you all here today has been inspired by and builds on those weekly translations. I think um, it's, a, it's a very interesting distinction. And it's also a result that I think a lot of people would find surprising because there is this cliche about, uh, which I think you among many other people have, have like worked assiduously to combat because I think it is incorrect. It's a cliche that like China can copy and it can scale um, and it can commercialize, but it cannot innovate. And it's very interesting to see that when you actually dig down into the weeds, the diffusion capability is, is worse than the innovation capability and that the U.S.'s lead on diffusion is, is greater. I think a lot of people would find that result surprising. Yeah, I think it's often informed by a few really attractive examples. So high-speed rail comes to mind. China is good at diffusing certain things, like high-speed rail, e-commerce, like sort of the food delivery apps. But when you look at um, some of these other innovations connected to general purpose technology trajectories and information communications technologies, computers, uh, cloud computing adoption, um, those diffusion rates are, are, are pretty slow. Uh, in terms of actually affecting productivity uh, in uh, in a lot of different businesses, you know, there are there are like pluses and minuses from a strictly America maximizing its national its national productivity growth over time perspective from thinking that China is gonna take over the world versus having a slightly more uh, you know realistic understanding of the company. Oh, oh, geez of the country's strengths and weaknesses when it comes to their own sort of productivity and technological um, projections. I mean, I think we've we've talked, and this is this is a theme I think I've been exploring and trying to talk for a while of on the one side, you know, you've got all this like McCarthyism, Cold War stuff of, of, of uh, overshooting the gap, but also China, the, the Chips and Science Act, um, which is the, the kind of most aggressive thing that America's done in 20 years to um, try to pull some levers around, um, you know, manufacturing and, and investing in, in, in science and technology. Um, maybe not exactly what you would have done from a uh, sort of diffusion uh, uh, focused uh, perspective, but, but still that doesn't happen unless you have politicians really worried about China's uh, rise as a, as a technological power. Any any sort of thoughts or, or meditations on, you know, the, the pluses and minuses of that discourse over the past uh, five years and, you know, the next few decades to come? Yeah, I think it's a very important point. There are instrumental reasons to overstate and hype up China's AI capabilities and scientific and technological prowess. And if I were someone who really believed in the Chips and Science Act as the most essential thing for U.S. national security, and the only way to get that across the board is to adopt a China is going to overtake us framing, there's reasons to do that. And I, and I see the rationale behind that. You know, I think there's also a lot of downsides, however, to overestimating someone as a threat. Um, it could lead to more threat inflation. It could lead to more willingness to escalate conflicts. Uh, we've seen that historically in the U.S.-Soviet Union case with the illusory missile gap and U.S. and Soviet Union getting to the brink of world destruction many, many times. Um, so I think there are downsides. And also, 
you know, as an academic, we're all biased and subjective, but there is someone has to, the truth matters too, right? There, there is something about defending the truth and ultimately maybe, you know, having a true and more accurate depiction of the scenario is ultimately a good thing. I can't really tell you all the different mechanisms behind it, but I, but I do think it matters. Um, so, yeah, defender of the truth, you know, put that on my epigraph or whatever. Um, it's interesting also kind of reflecting on this if you're in Xi's head, right? Or, or, or Chinese policymakers' head. This is like, you know, everything I read about China and AI seems hyperbolic. And the sort of self-flagellation of the Chinese internet over the past six months watching ChatGPT explode in the West has been like really interesting of all of a sudden everyone, you know, they went from like, uh, you know, the sort of discourse went from like, yeah, we're going to be awesome and amazing to like, like, we're so pathetic as a country, like we need to, um, to, to, to get our act together. And like, this is a, this is a long struggle we're in for or, or whatever. I can paint like a really positive upside of, uh, of the dose of realism being injected into the Chinese, uh, discourse doing for, you know, Chinese policymaking. If, if, um, you know, if, if Beijing ultimately understands that, like, you know, they, they are going to be on the back foot technologically for a number of years to come and that, that and that sort of like getting into a sort of more competitive uh, dynamic with the U.S. is just like like the, the odds of you coming out ahead on that um, is probably way worse than the sort of expectation that that, that you have um, uh, um, baked in baked in currently. I don't know. Any 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 uh, thoughts or reflections there, Teddy or Teddy or Jeff? I mean, from from the U.S. side of things, this is something I've been thinking about lately a lot is I think we have shifted so far into the U.S. national security interests is uh, we need to beat China in all these different forms of competition. And, and the biggest risk is if China overtakes us on something, whether it's military, economic, soft power. I think there, and I'm not sure where I stand on this, but why are we not considering the biggest national security risk for the U.S. is a weak China and a China that can't sustain its growth? Um, for the longest time, that was U.S. State Department policy, is a strong China is is good for peace. So yeah, all this self-flagellation that's been coming out in terms of China's AI sector has been overhyped. I think it speaks to, could China also suffer a stagnation economically? And, and what are the national security consequences for the U.S. because of that? And it might not be good. Um, so it's just something that's even not in the Overton window that we're even talking about anymore in terms of uh, what's happening in the city that I live in and what people here talk about. Um, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really tricky Goldilocks thing, right? Like like the way I see this getting turned around is China China slows down and America and all its allies keep, you know, growing very nicely with their, you know, adoption of GPTs and whatnot and 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 sort of the the whatever comes after she realizes that in fact, you need to um, be globally integrated and have like happy diplomatic relations in order to, you know, have a place on the national stage and and be respected and and you know end up being able to uh, you know keep pace with 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 other countries around the world. But also, you know, I've done a lot of shows about this idea of temporal claustrophobia, right? Where um, you know Imperial Japan and and Nazi Germany and 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 the Kaiser all convinced themselves that like they were at a high water mark. And 
you know, uh, if you like one of the ways to not play a multi-decadal game is to start a war. And uh, that's the sort of thing where like, OK, if you if you sort of roll the dice now in a really aggressive way, then like you can like massive wars are one ways where you sort of short circuit that long-term productivity uh contest and if you kind of like get lucky or you overperform in in a in a narrower window because you have you know some sort of edge or another even though most of the time the countries that win wars are the ones that are larger and more technologically advanced like it's not every time um and that can be the sort of out if you talk yourself into you know whatever the long-term trajectory is being a hopeless one for the aims that you have as a as a national leader. Yeah. Um I think that's I think that that squares with my understanding as well. Yeah, I mean I, I feel like I'm ending every China talk on World War Three, which is kind of a bummer. <laughs> but um you know such such are the times. Uh Jeff, congratulations on all your fantastic research. Everyone should um read uh Jeff's papers, which we'll link in the show notes. Thanks so much for being part of Thank you guys. I'm a motherfucking food time rapper. One two, 没有时间再给你们耽误。他们 mercy 并在反复，出现人传人不断散布。Mixtape 来扩大版图，听完都去写八百字感悟。啊，市面上没有对手，除非上瘾的蟑螂在散布。我的高度大部分 rapper 达不到综上，看个乐都他妈吓唬到评论家公众号，还以为我是他同行。嘿，这你们受不了小屁儿没长大缺乏父爱，那我提前给你们送成人礼刮胡刀。他们的好奇我怎么就越来越有魅力，男人我擦不了污。I got a move， 他们猜不到我成长的速度。我每天都在录音棚里管你管你，今天准备要骂一辆路虎。带领中文 hiphop 进入摩西微信，他们还停留在幕府，跟不上我的节奏，那就罚你留堂子。电话来通知你父母啊，呀，阴谋阳谋，我打直球，从来都不需要预谋啊。偷我的 flow 太多了，如有雷同，纯属虚构啊。男左女右站成一排，爱我的现在举手啊。嫌我话多，拿我的私事图上你整个宇宙。如果说太牛逼，也有最比你们强，让我感到了羞愧。天生就是为了让对手流泪，我一个人就是一整个球队啊。智商像是 Phil Jackson， 同志力就是 MJ。我的尺寸像是 Scotty Pippen， 可以同。是对付多个单位，肉满背后 ninety one， 差不多是我的 body count。觉睡到了下午三点半，然后起床准备去下一场。受不了谎言，现在靠你 rapper 被粉丝圈在了家里养。你可以叫我机器人瓦力啊，专门来清理这个垃圾场。那 copycat 东拼西凑，复制自笑了。翻定尼莫，觉得自己很超像 Migos。过期了该怎么逃生？依旧呢，现实给你的 beat， 我只想做经典来 beatles、啊。再过五年以后，谁还记得 D.O.P.O. Vivo 呢？别跟我 emo 了，出来混机会都是脸皮厚的，上了。脸皮肉罢了 ，bounce back 再比谁的肌肉大。粉丝们见了我签名拍照都说我好激动啊！我说其实我梦想是改变这世界，就像伊隆马。I'm so international， 换个 flow， 你能跟着拍 so hard so hard， 我的新的 cash flow， 下个韵脚 king 的 animal。我的幽默你猜不透，就像我的灵感你带不走。不光走到哪里，哪里就是中说唱新的 capital。X E 上档 B G C， 家里蹲超越 T D E， 从那个 B 站 up 出做起，一直站上了 T E D， 拿下了年度专辑，大屏幕循环播放我的。PPT， 看我 sealed up， 颁奖典礼把我变成了 Grammy 和 BET。那 twenty twenty three，Let's do it again。Back to Bala Lakes， 九九的零一年。等沐浴更衣，把整场 mixtape 听一遍
。花了你概念，像见到了月球的另一面的，跟疯狗都可换口味了。看我演出像看口吃了，他们想要你能遵守规则的，见到我他们全都没辙。从舞蹈又做嘻哈生意，建立属于我的 rock a f e l l a 我才刚刚开始，现在要进入下个回合。他们的，完了完了，下一首吧。